0: From the supposedly ornamental Univest Studios at Lehigh Valley Public Media in Bethlehem, PA, it is time for another tree-shaming episode of chemical-free horticultural hijinks you bet your garden. You see them all over the place, Bradford, Cleveland, and other supposedly non-fruiting pear trees. Well, I'm your host, Mike McGrath, and on today's show, I'll reveal why you should never plant one of these supposedly ornamental monsters. Plus, we talk with a shady lady about plants for shade, and we'll take your telecommunicated questions, comments, tips, tricks, suggestions, and decidedly demure declarations. So keep your eyes and/or ears right here, at cats and kittens. Because it's all coming up faster than you not attracting flies to your flowers, right after this. Support for You Bet Your Garden is provided by the Espoma Company, offering a complete selection of natural organic plant foods and potting soils. More information about Espoma and the Espoma Natural Gardening Community can be found at ESPOMA.com. Welcome to another thrilling episode of You Bet Your Garden from the Univest Studios at Lehigh Valley Public Media in Bethlehem, PA. I am your host, Mike McGrath. Coming up later in the show, we'll discuss shade-loving plants with a shady lady and we'll warn you about the notorious, invasive, and evil Bradford pear. That's a lot to get done. So let's hop right to your fabulous phone calls at 888-492-9444. Donna, welcome to You Bet Your Garden.
1: Thank you. Hello from Alaska.
0: Well, hello back to Alaska. Um, what part of Alaska does Donna live in?
1: Uh, the southeast part in Haines, about 90 miles north of the capital of Juneau.
0: Okay, north. I didn't get that far. Back in 97, um, I was hired by the Southeast Alaska Master Gardeners Association um, to come to Juneau and give a couple of talks and tour the gardens there. And then my eight-year-old daughter and I took the Alaska Marine Highway, the ferry, all the way back to Bellingham, Mm -hmm. Washington. It was just remarkable. But you were just a little further north than we got. so. But I do know your climate very well. So what can we do you for?
1: Well, I am putting some 12-inch deep garden boxes on top of a lawn of clover. And I want to know if that is enough cover to kill the clover, or will it just grow right up through that 12 inches? Um,
0: I doubt it would grow. That's the first question. (laughs) Yeah, I doubt it would grow up... through twelve, how come? Oh, uh, and what? What's the actual size? Not just the depth.
1: Uh, it's a four by eight. The first one. I'm just on the first one here. So it's a four by eight garden box, twelve Perf- inches
0: deep. Perfect size and shape. And what do you intend to grow in it? Not to be cruel, but haven't you harvested enough cabbages to keep you happy for the rest <laughs> of your life? <laughs>
1: Well, uh, my cabbages are still out there, and I'm chasing the slugs every day, trying to keep them nice till I get around to picking them. But um, what am I planting? In this particular bed, I'm planning to plant just strawberries.
0: Oh, okay. And um, And I'm
1: going to do a couple more that will be for vegetables.
0: Okay. But, you know, you can't grow tomatoes or peppers out in the open in southeast Alaska. You need to have, like, a rudimentary greenhouse to trap enough heat to ripen them up.
1: For the most part, yes, that's true. Okay. Um, so this is a property. It's not my home, and I do grow tomatoes outdoors in my home uh, up against the building, though, where they have that residual warmth. But I'm not trying to grow tomatoes over in this garden. This is a, uh, it's an old hostel that I bought, and um, I'm trying to put in a garden for the residents that live there. And,
0: um, yeah. You bought an so, old hostel? So I was going to start with
1: strawberries. Hostel.
0: Uh, hostel. Oh. You to... <laughs> I was gonna say this is this is acing up to be one of the weirder calls on this show which is saying <laughs> something okay a youth hostel you have this Lotie Dodd Disney image of the kids coming out and picking strawberries and putting flowers in their hair very nice now well they're
1: not they're not children they're adults and um
0: I still. Yeah, and
1: so this, I'm putting in this garden in the middle of an acre of lawn. So my other question is about that too. But um, but yeah, the first question was just of um, growing up through the clover.
0: I would, because the it's. The clover a, growing up through the dirt. <laughs> I hear you. Because it's a four by eight raised bed, I would either, well, I would remove the sod, is essentially it. Okay. Um, you can rent a machine to do that. Or if you're handy, you can use a couple of different tools to get it out as if you were using a sod cutter. And then our normal advice is to simply turn that sod upside down and build your raised bed on top of that. So over time, the nitrogen-rich grass and the nitrogen-rich clover will decompose and additionally feed your plants. But I'm thinking about this clover. Um, so is this a lawn that was deliberately overseeded?
1: Um, you know, it was, um, I think, underneath my topsoil is like a gravel where it used to be a driveway to the kitchen house. And so it's, it's if I try to dig down, it's really rocky right there. Um, the, so the rest of the soil in other places is not. But in this particular spot, it, it's really Um, Not very good. So then I called in uh, two truckloads of topsoil, and I think the clover came with the topsoil, Uh not with the grass seed that I bought. And I got I bought this topsoil, two truckloads, and then it was so uh, unnutritious that I bought bags and bags and bags of compost to put on top of it.
2: Mm -hmm. So I got
1: the whole thing going last year, and, you know, I thought I had a good lawn going, and I come back this spring, and it's just absolutely full of clover wherever
0: I seed it. So, I mean,
1: wherever that uh, topsoil went out. You're a
0: gardener, right? Yeah. Clover is the best thing you could be growing. So, um... How, uh, who mows the lawn?
1: Uh, it depends. Usually one of the residents.
0: Okay. I would urge you, and the lawn's not treated? Correct. Okay. I would urge you to use a bagging lawn mower when the clover is in full flower, and then uh, let that dry out a little bit and crush it up, and I would use that to fertilize your raised bed, And the other plants at home, as you probably know, clover is a nitrogen-fixing plant. It Mm -hmm. is able to take nitrogen from the air and hold it inside its own biomass. Now, people mistakenly think it'll feed a plant next to it, which it won't. But each clover plant is a nutritional powerhouse, especially for non-flowering plants, which are in, in a regular vegetable garden. They're the most popular ones in your area of the country. So I would urge you to incorporate the clover. Um it's yeah, I hear If we, I put the Go ahead the, I'm sorry. <laughs>
1: um if I put the clippings on the garden though, is the is the grassy just gonna sprout more grass? You know, because maybe stuff is seeding when the, you know, when the lawn is cut.
0: No, no, no. That, that should not happen as long as you're cutting it on a normal, regular basis. Um, no, I mean, this is okay. grass clippings are rich in nitrogen. Uh, the clover is incredibly rich in natural nitrogen. So I, I would specialize here in growing non-flowering plants, which, of course, does not include strawberries. Is there a special variety of strawberries that can take your... Uh, day and night extremes when you get to the the edges of the universe?
1: You know, I've seen several varieties of strawberries grow here. I've grown, I don't even know the names of the varieties I have anymore, but um, I was just going to take some cuttings off of my ones at home to bring over there and um,
0: okay, um, you know, start them again. You should collect the combination of the grass clippings and the clover and do something with it uh, with for non-flowering plants, you know, lettuces, salad greens, again, cabbages and kale, mm-hmm. things that grow really well in your climate. And then what I would do, save time, save work, I would just scalp that area. I would run it over with a lawnmower until you see dirt blowing out the back and then just build the raised bed on top of it. Um, If you want some insurance, there's the old trick of laying cardboard down over top of the scalped area to smother any Uh grass that tries to re-sprout, and then you fill your soil and compost over top of that. So I think you'd do very well with that situation. All right?
1: So, May, can I take... Right now, I've got a huge pile of the grass clippings. Could I just put them on the bottom of one of the boxes and then put more soil on top of it and just let it compost naturally, you know, at the bottom of the bed, it
0: it won't compost. It will degenerate, but it'll only provide nitrogen. So, I mean, in my region, it's great for lawn. It's great for sweet corn. Again, any non-flowering plant... But you have to be careful. I mean, um, grass clippings, even if they're untainted, are best composted with a lot of dry browns. And that doesn't include cardboard or waste paper. Um, you have deciduous trees. So shred some of those up, mix mm-hmm. the grass clippings, and you're doing mm-hmm. great. Okay. All right?
1: So compost at first would be better.
0: Oh, yeah. yeah. Compost is everything.
1: Thank you so much for your help.
0: Well, thank you. It's great to hear from uh, somebody up there.
1: <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, take care.
0: You too. Little
1: box little box, bugs, a box, little a box, bugs. a box, in a box, Little box little a box, in a box, in a box, a box, in a box, Little box in a box, a box, in a box, in a box, in Little bug, little bug, little bug, little bug, little bug, little bug. One little bug, little bug, little bug, little bug, little bug, little bug. One little bug, little bug, little bug, little bug, little bug, little bug.
0: Well, it's time for me to take a little break and remind everybody in cool climes that your last runs of lettuce and other salad greens should be protected by row covers, also known as remay, or a, quote, blanket of sheer curtains. Don't use actual blankets. These items will keep your plants growing and producing for an extra month or maybe all winter. I'm still growing, Mike McGrath, and you're listening to You Bet Your Garden from the Univest Studios at Lehigh Valley Public Media in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. Support for You Bet Your Garden is provided by the Espoma Company, offering a complete selection of natural, organic plant foods and potting soils. More information about Espoma and the Espoma Natural Gardening Community can be found at ESPOMA.com. Welcome to a very special edition of You Bet Your Garden from the studios of the Univest Public Media Center in Bethlehem, PA. Now it's time to welcome our special guest, Amy Ziffer, author of The Shady Ladies Guide to Northeast Shade Gardening. It's a new book. It came out this spring, and it's the second edition, which means she did a good job on the first one. Amy, welcome to You Bet Your Garden.
2: Hi, Mike. Thanks for having me.
0: Well, thanks for being had, Amy. Um, <laughs> now, you know, are you, okay, first of all, are are you a shady lady?
2: Um, only in the best sense.
0: You don't cheat at cards or crap games or anything like that?
2: Um, I've never been caught
0: doing that. <laughs> <laughs> well, that may make you shadier. What? specifically compelled you, um, to do a very inclusive book on shade gardening in the Northeast. Did you simply know that there was a big demand for this kind of information or are you living in Snow White's old house in the forest?
2: Um, well, maybe both. Actually, I, I do live in a house in the forest. Um, and it's, and it's really nice. I wouldn't have it any other way, but, uh, no, you know, I, um, I uh, My business name was Shea Lady Garden Design, and um, in working with clients through the years, I, and I also have a background in publishing, actually, I should just take a step back. Um, I used to work for uh, a magazine that did not compete with the magazine that you used to work for. <laughs> so, <laughs> Uh, can I say which one it was? Sure. <laughs> um, I used to be a, a staff editor on Fine Gardening, which you know is a magazine. Uh, not always, but in uh, back in the '90s when I worked there, it was uh, devoted to ornamental shade gardening exclusively. Uh, because of that background in in publishing, I think, and specifically garden publishing, and then working with clients, I just felt that there really wasn't a great resource that was devoted to that topic, and uh, I just decided I was going to take a shot at proposing it to a publisher, and uh, I was lucky enough to find one.
0: Somewhere in the book, you mention that when an author attempts a labor like this, they wind up learning more than the people who read the book, um, because it forces us to do research and to double and triple check everything.
2: Yes, so that's very true, um, this, particularly of the second edition, because I had to approach, uh, in order to cover the subjects I wanted to, to cover in the second edition, I had to approach people who knew more about those subjects than I, than I did. So, yes, I did learn a lot in the second edition, and that was great. That was great. I'd like to learn more.
0: One of the things, I've, it, it took me much too long to learn this, about the little bit of landscaping I do in the front of my house nothing looks better than removal of certain plants. hmm I had a, a coward shade garden, hostas, impatiens, and begonias. But, um, you know, that it's impossible to control hostas. And, you know, well, there some was... Are,
2: some are way more vigorous than others.
0: Yeah. There were just too many. You couldn't walk mm-hmm. in there. And right. just this spring... Um, I had um, an intern working with me. And I said, get this big honking weed whacker and follow me. And after I'm done walking in a place, just whack the heck out of all of these. And it was mostly hostas. And the garden never looked better.
2: You know, you mentioned access and a point that I um, find myself making with with audiences that I give presentations to more and more, is the subject of structure in garden spaces, um, which all starts with ideas about access and how you use spaces, how you're going to access spaces. And I find that it's really difficult to get people to think that way about their gardens because they are accustomed to just thinking them as sort of collections of plants or expanses of plants. but Really, they're much more satisfying if you start with the idea of how you're going to move through the space.
0: One of the, the things I wanted to talk with you about is flowering shade plants. Mm-hmm. Um, previous books that address this subject, um, they're talking about foliage. They're talking about plants with big, showy, colorful leaves, Um but uh, boy, I'm seeing a lot of flowers, and uh, once you get to the name the plant section of your book,
2: uh, so that that's true. I mean, um, you know, most of the this was a very highly curated group of plants, so I was looking specifically to share a a large number of flowering plants with people because just like that lady in the luncheon, you know, people want flowers in their gardens. And I can't blame them for that, I I do as well. Um, I think the most important thing to know about flowering in the shade is that the plants, most of the plants, I mean a vast majority of the plants that are well adapted to shady conditions are spring bloomers. So if you want flowering in your garden in the summer and fall months, you have to be very selective um, about your plants in order to have that flowering carry, carry through through the seasons. So, um, for instance, uh, there are a number of native asters here in New England that actually do very, very well in shade, ex- exceptionally well in shade. Not a lot of them. I and mean, Most asters are, do remain sun plants. I'm not talking about those. I'm talking about a couple of shade-adapted species. I always make the point to people that if you just write down like the first four or five shade plants you think of, and then if you don't know when they flower and you look it up, I would bet that four out of five, if not all five, will turn out to be spring bloomers.
0: In many, many people's cases, they're going to think having a shade garden is counterproductive because they're not helping native bees or butterflies uh, but again, as I was uh, paging through the second part of your book, I'm seeing beautiful flowers and it didn't seem like it was going to be that difficult um, to carry through the season.
2: Yeah, well, uh, not to mention the fact that bees and butterflies uh, don't only reside and uh, forage in the sun. There are actually bee species that are kind of forest bee species. And, um, you know, we have butterflies that um, uh, transform from caterpillars that feed on uh, forest understory plants like um Lindera benzo and i actually have the latin names are not a problem for me it's the common names i always have trouble <laughs> remembering literally so um Lindera benzo and of spice bush it just came to me okay spice bush so we have spice bush swallowtail caterpillars for instance um, and, a spice, you know, the, the plant itself will take some sun, but the fact is that it just, I, I think you don't see it in the sun, because growing in the sun naturally, because it probably gets outcompeted by other things, you know. So it has its niche in the shade, and it has its associated animal and insect species. There's not going to be a vacuum in terms of insect life. There is going to be something to fill every available niche in the shade.
0: Now you're in trouble. Because, like most authors who cover a large topic, um, I have to ask you who your favorite children are.
2: So, um, yeah, toad lily, you know, is pretty um, pretty well known. I think for having unusual flowers, and also it's a fall bloomer. So it's you know, we, earlier we were talking about ways to extend the season. It's certainly one of the. Um, uh, easily obtainable plants for you know for gardeners who want to have uh, fall blooming plants in the shade. And, and they're, they're they're just such architectural, such uh, the flowers are so yes. architectural. They're really really lovely. They look designed. Um, they to me they look like something that should be from another planet. <laughs> yeah.
0: All right, Amy Ziffer is the shady lady. And her book is the Shady Lady's Guide to Northeast Shade Gardening. It's a great book. It is. Oh, yeah. It is. Let me, heavy. Let me
2: let me close by. If it, well, yes, uh, it is a lot heavier than the first edition. Let me close by suggesting a native plant for you to try that I'll bet you're not growing. Go. Golden seal.
0: Oh yes, but I should be.
2: Yes, you should be. So. Yeah. <laughs> Give it a try. <laughs> great little plant. I'm very enthusiastic about it.
0: Thank you, Amy, for being with us today.
2: Thank you. Have a great day. You too. Have, have, happy gardening.
0: Same to you. Alita, welcome to You Bet Your Garden. Why, well, thank you. Well, thank you, Alita. How you doing?
3: Just dandy, just studying. Trying <laughs> to get my teacher certification.
0: Oh, well, good for you. They need more teachers right now.
3: Yes. So I hear.
0: And where are you?
3: I'm in Pottstown, Pennsylvania.
0: All right. What can we do for you?
3: Well, my question was, I I have, I I garden. I like perennials because I want to fill it up and have less weeding to do, but of course to keep weeding. So I have a lot of black-eyed Susans that Mm -hmm. come in and expand, and I've taken them to I've taken seedlings to my husband's small business, he has a fence business, and tried to plant them along the fences so it looks a little pretty. Mm
2: -hmm. And
3: unfortunately, his workers are not familiar with perennials, and they, in their weeding, often rip them out. So my question is, I I decided maybe it's better to do them in the fall and then go talk to them and say, "These are what the leaves look like, please don't rip them out. But my question is, if I pull the seedlings that have not bloomed this past season, out and transplant those, will they flower next
0: season? Black-eyed Susan is a somewhat complicated plant. Uh, There are a lot of different varieties, uh, believe it or not, and some of them differ in their, quote, habit. In the wild, they are biennials. They will produce uh, a plant the first year, and then produce the flowers on that plant the second year. And the seeds cross-pollinate and everything gets mixed up. And even the poor flower doesn't know what it's supposed to do. In, in gardens, um, you know, if you buy professionally grown starts, they'll probably be listed as something like half-hardy perennials or short-lived perennials. Now, the reason a lot of people think they are truly perennial is that they readily self-seed. A lot of the seed that they produce that the birds miss drops to the ground, and that's where the new run comes out. Um, and you, you'd never know it. I mean, it's uh, it's right. many plants are like this. So, um, you have a couple of options. You can uh, just transplant the plants directly. And you could also be a little sloppy in doing so and not get all of the roots because they will regrow from the rhizomes they produce underground. So live plants, um, pieces of root, Either one of those is going to produce um, flowering plants for you. And, of course, you can collect some of the seed, the dried seed heads, like with sunflowers. I would start those inside under bright lights and plant them out around um, sometime in April, April or May.
3: All right. Thank you so much, Mike.
0: My pleasure. You take care.
3: Please call us
0: at 888 492 9444 Kane, welcome to You Bet Your Garden. Thank you, O oh great King of Compost. <laughs> yeah, well, somebody had to do it, and I was the only guy left in the room. How you doing, Kane?
4: Yeah, good. How about yourself?
0: I'm just Ducky. Thanks for asking. And where is Kane? Highland Lakes, New Jersey. All right. What can we do you for? I have a crazy question for you. When making yard waste compost, ground leaves, uh, and using the coffee grounds, Mm -hmm. does it matter if you use decaf coffee grounds? And the reason I ask is I know some of the, um, I guess, decaffeination processes use chemicals or maybe eliminate the nitrogen from the caffeine molecule. When coffee is decaffeinated, there are two different processes. One is what's called the water process. I don't know exactly what it involves, but the only thing that's added that somehow sucks most of the caffeine out is clean water. Uh, you are absolutely correct in, um, I'm not sure if it's still done, uh, but the other process is based on solvents, chemical solvents, and I can see why you'd want to avoid those in a compost pile. Um, who who drinks the decaf? I do not. I'm a, a pure caffeine person, but uh, when I made compost, I didn't have enough coffee, so I went to one of the name brand places who would give you as many coffee grounds as you would like. Hmm. So we're talking about Starbucks. Yeah. You've got your question three quarters of the way answered. Uh, go to the Starbucks website, and you know, look around, and if you can click on decaf coffee. Um, do it because, you know, they generally are very proud about where their beans come from and how they're handled. Um, Or if there's a chat box, just ask directly, um, how is your coffee decaffeinated? But uh, you're absolutely right. I would not use uh, a solvent-based decaf coffee. All right, Mike. Thank you very much. Hey, thank you for a great question. Well, it's time for me to take a little break and remind everybody out there that pansies are the flower for fall. Let's face it, those perfectly pruned mums really do look like a shower cap your aunt wore at the beach in the 50s. And ornamental cabbage and kale? I don't think they're ornamental. They look more like an alien mold that's creeping along than a front door decoration. Ah, but cold weather loving pansies are bright, happy plants that will delight you with their colorful faces all fall. And then revive for another run in the spring. And they're edible, the flowers. I'm Edible Mike McGrath and you're listening to You Bet Your Garden from the Univest Studios at Lehigh Valley Public Media in Bethlehem, PA. This is 91.3 FM WLVR Bethlehem, a broadcast service of Lehigh University. Streaming online at WLVR.org from the Univest Public Media Center. Summer at the Stacks is a free event taking place the first two weekends of August outside the WLVR studios on the Steel Stacks campus. Engage in a variety of activities. Check out a new mural by a local artist. Visit art vendors and enjoy local craft brews. More info at lehighvalleynews.com slash summeratthestacks. This event is supported in part by the Lehigh Valley Brewers Guild and Lehigh Center for Clinical Research. Welcome to a very special edition of You Bet Your Garden from the studios of the Univest Public Media Center in Bethlehem, PA. Mark, welcome to You Bet Your Garden. Hey, Mike. How's it going? I am just... Ducky Mark, how are you? I am doing okay. Beautiful <laughs> weather here in U- University Park, Pennsylvania. Uh, university Park, Maryland. I was going to say you're you're confused about where you are. Um, university. I am.
4: Well, there is in fact, fe- yeah, there is in fact a University Park in Pennsylvania, also.
0: Yeah, I believe it. There's probably a University Park everywhere. Where else are you going to yep. park the universities? Ba-dum-bum.
4: Exactly. Anyway. Exactly.
0: You're in the greater Washington, D.C. area.
4: Yep, uh, University Park, a little bitty town just south of College Park where the University of Maryland is. Very good. All
0: right, what can we do you for?
4: Well, you had a caller a couple weeks back, you'll probably recall, who was complaining about um, what to do with all the itchy balls he had in his uh, yard. Itchy balls meaning those spiky balls that uh, the sweet gum trees drop. Right. And, and we have the same problem um, in the park just outside our, uh, our back fence. We have uh, a couple of sweetgum trees, and somehow, you know, they're in the park, but somehow they manage to throw at least half their spiky balls, itchy balls, into our yard. Oh, yeah. And, yeah. And if, if that listener happens to be, uh, the caller happens to be listening, um, he might like to know that those itchy balls actually make excellent
0: kindling. Oh, okay I remember i've uh, I've spent a lot of time in your immediate area, and a lot of people burn wood in the winter that's right that's right and and actually
4: actually um where i where I was burning them was in the wood stove in our cabin up in Pennsylvania. Um, but I only did it once, and I, 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 years back, I took a bag of them uh, up to the cabin, burned them in the wood stove, and they worked great. So, but, I stopped doing, uh, but I stopped doing it after that first bag because I was worried about the possibility I might be transporting pests uh, across state lines, you know, since those spiky balls sit on the ground for a while before they get picked up. I was wondering if I might not be uh, doing uh, some damage somehow with transporting Bugs.
0: Well, that is an honorable thing to worry about. Uh, what do you use to transport them?
4: Um, I just, I just put them in a, I had them stored in a paper bag out in a, in, in gazebo outside or, uh, our backyard, and took them up to the cabin, and they were then stored inside the cabin next to the wood stove until
0: I used them. So um, I'm
4: guessing the risk is prob is probably low, but
0: oh, you don't have to have any risk at all. Um, what I would suggest is, if you're dealing with small amounts, um, go to a home or hardware store and get what we used to call a slop can, which is a, you know, metal garbage can, so to speak, with a locking lid, oh, yeah. and uh-huh. use that to transport it um open the lid when you want to throw in some kindling and then lock it back uh-huh. up again so if there are any nefarious pests in there uh they're just going to burn to death and
4: burn baby burn that sounds that sounds like a great idea yeah. um i and, think I, I i may try that because we we have several bags full of sitting in that gazebo out back just waiting for something to happen
0: and of course you could then work your way up to a true trash can, again, corrugated metal with a locking lid. I mean, it depends on how much you um you have. Um maybe yeah. if it's not that many, then you get two slop cans and you look like you're really doing something.
4: Or or how about how about those Home Depot style um um
0: plastic buckets with oh. snap-on lids? No. 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 <laughs> They're, you know, Why, don't, because you plastic? To, don't you get depressed looking at the drowning baby on the side? I mean, those things freak me out <laughs> and we don't need oh, really? more. We don't need more plastic. And I think you'll find that these uh, small garbage cans or even big garbage cans are incredibly useful in the garden and around yeah. the home. Now, tell me, yeah. tell yeah. me exactly what you do, because I have a wood stove. And, and what I do is I, uh, you know, take apart a bunch of newspaper, roll it up and put that on the bottom, and then some small sticks and other forms of kindling we've picked up from the yard, and then yep. one piece of wood that's ready, you know, that's been split. Yeah. And then I'll get yeah. that going, and once that's really raging, I'll start throwing in uh, more logs, for lack of a better word. Do you do the newspaper? Well,
4: yeah, but that's about exactly what I do. Um, and uh, when i when I was using the uh, the spiky balls, I just substituted them for the small kindling sticks, and then and then the one or maybe two logs uh, above that.
0: I think that is a great idea. Um, I got nothing to say other than congratulations.
4: <laughs> Thanks. Do I have time for another quick question?
0: Let's see how quick it is. Questions can be quick. Okay. Answers can take a long time.
4: <laughs>
0: okay. Uh, you've talked about uh, fire,
4: um, fire readers, flame weeders in the past. Yeah. And uh, in both of our locations here at the house and up at the cabin, we have gravel driveways mm-hmm. and uh,
0: lots of weedy, grassy things growing up in there. Mm-hmm. Would a
4: flame reader be a good way to get rid of those?
0: Um, you'd get bored pretty quickly. What I have done in my gravel (laughs) driveway is I let the grass and weeds grow until they're four or five inches high. And then I mow them just like it was a lawn. And within a couple of weeks or a month, you have all this green. Now, remember that green is contributing, um, to putting oxygen in the air, sequestering carbon, um, you're not doing anything with propane that will put some more gases in the atmosphere. Um, yeah. it, it benefits everybody, and it looks great. People go nuts. How are you parking on your lawn without making marks? <laughs> no, it's a gravel driveway. It's not the lawn. Right, right. But I'm saying it will look like a lawn once you get into the uh, let it grow and mow it.
4: Oh uh, Well, if they, if they spread to cover the entire driveway, I suppose that's true.
0: Uh, it has for me. But
4: anyway, okay, okay. Well, I'll, I'll I'll think about it. That might be the way to go.
0: Yeah, because otherwise you're just doing the same thing over and over.
4: Yeah, yeah. All right. Okay. You well, take care, my, Mark. Thank, thanks for helping. Thanks for taking the time. I appreciate it. My pleasure. Bye-bye. Yeah. Take care.
0: Time for the question of the week, which we're calling... Please do not plant ornamental pear trees. Gail in Clarence Center, New York, writes, Here are some photos of my Cleveland pear trees. As you can see, we have a row of them lining our driveway. We planted them around 15 years ago. The lawn is not treated, and the driveway is not salted in the winter. They do have compost at their base, but it isn't mounded. All the other trees seem to be doing fine, but one is in trouble. I noticed last year that it seemed a little sparse, but no dead leaves. This year it got worse, and now the leaves are brown. I tried to get somebody to come out and look at it, but local companies are apparently too busy for one tree. We'll cut it down soon. Do you have any idea what could have killed it? I am concerned about the others. Well, Cleveland pear, like the notorious Bradford pear, is one of several varieties of, quote, ornamental pear trees, often called caliper pears, or more properly, calorie pears, C-A-L-L-E-R-Y, named for Marie Callery, who sent the first specimens from China to Europe. Now, I'm putting quotes around ornamental, because while they may be nice to look at in the spring, when they are covered with showy white flowers, they are brittle trees whose branches regularly come crashing down to the ground. Their flowers are fragrant with the smell of rotting meat, tainted fish and or dog poop on your shoes because their flowers are pollinated by flies and not bees and despite being bred to be non-fruiting they have become seriously invasive apparently non-fruiting simply means the trees do not produce juicy eating pears But all that filthy fly pollination does lead to the development of small, numerous fruits. Which, again, I have to put quote marks around because these hard half-inch things contain seeds that are rich in naturally occurring cyanide. How charming. Ah, but as the weather cools towards frost, those little hard balls become soft and attract birds who eat the flesh and poop out the seeds at one of their next rest stops. The seeds germinate rapidly in the spring, and neglected areas of field and forest quickly become calorie-pair nurseries, forming an almost impenetrable mass of the nasty things, displacing wanted plants, native plants, and pretty much everything else. But wait. These trees were bred to produce flowers that couldn't be self-pollinated or cross-pollinated. Ah, but there's lots of these trees. Each tree has lots of flowers. There's always lots of flies and lots of new varieties of these trees being continually introduced into the market. And eventually as Jurassic Park's Jeff Goldblum would have predicted, nature finds a way. And now there are miserable monocultures of these triffids contaminating large spaces from the South through the Mid-Atlantic and all the way up to Madison, Wisconsin. Thus my headline, please don't plant any more of these vegetative villains. Now, Back to Gail's dead tree. I first want to congratulate her on having a chemical-free lawn and avoiding road salt in the winter. But those non-mounds of compost around the base of her trees are, well, they're mounds. And they're big enough to be capable of creating the dreaded volcano effect, rotting the bottom of the trunk where the mulch keeps it constantly moist. The solution is simple. Use a rake or a hoe to spread those mounds out until they reach the margins of the root systems and are no longer touching the trunk. If the trunk of the dead tree has been completely rotted or nibbled away where it was previously covered, that's why that one died. And you know, this always happens to the tree in the middle of the line never one on either end that you could remove without suspicion. No, it's always some guy in the middle. These trees were bred to be disease-resistant. But like their supposed sterility, those dreams did not come true either. Although their biggest enemies are the high winds, heavy wet snow, and ice that break their fragile branches, they are susceptible to diseases such as fire blight a nasty bacteria that affects eating pears as well. The symptoms appear to match up pretty well with Gale's dead tree, and there is no real cure once a tree is that far gone. Interestingly, the filth flies that pollinate the flowers in spring transmit the disease. Bottom line, get it out of there before the roots spread this problem to your other trees. And yes, that means the stump must be pulled out. But, like all fruit trees, the wood emits a marvelous fragrance when burned, which you should definitely do. And you should probably make plans for the others. Fast-growing trees have the shortest lives, and ornamental pears generally only survive for about 25 years. But don't feel bad about growing a short-lived, villainous zombie tree. When first introduced in the swinging 60s, when many other flowering mistakes were made, it was hailed as the perfect flowering tree. And for nursery owners, it was the least expensive tree to produce and the fastest to grow. Even the legendary wildflower lover and wife of President Lyndon, want to see my scar, Johnson, had a Bradford pear, the earliest variety of these trees, planted in downtown Washington, D.C. in the early 60s. Even worse, the New York Times praised the Bradford, saying few trees possess every desired attribute, But the Bradford ornamental pear comes unusually close to the ideal. And that, boys and girls, is fake news. Well, that sure was some unfortunate information about so-called ornamental pear trees, now wasn't it? Luckily for you, the Question of the Week appears in print at the Garden's Alive website. To read it over at your leisure, or of course your leisure, just click the link for the Question of the Week at our website, which is still, and will forever be, youbetyourgarden.org. Gardens Alive supports the You Bet Your Garden question of the week, and you will always find the latest question of the week where? At the Gardens Alive website. You Bet Your Garden is a half-hour public television show, an hour-long public radio show and podcast, all produced and delivered to you weekly from the Univest Studios at Lehigh Valley Public Media in Bethlehem, PA. Our radio show is distributed by PRX, the public radio exchange. You Bet Your Garden was created by Mike McGrath. Mike McGrath was created when he saw the Three Stooges live at a Philadelphia nightclub in 1960. Hey, Mo! Yikes, my producer is threatening to plant pears on my property. If I don't get out of this studio, we must be out of time. But you can call us anytime at 888-492-9444 or send us your email. You're tired, you're poor, you're wretched refuse teeming towards our garden shores at YBYG at Please include your location. I'm your host, Mike McGrath, and I'll be begging my last tomato plants to die with dignity so I can get out of my sauce-splattered kitchen and see you again next week.